0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi.
1: Jay, this week, we are doing an interview, first one in a little while. We haven't uh, chatted with anybody individually in uh, quite some time. So this one actually uh, was a suggestion after we did the Harvey Danger record review. A friend of the show, multiple guests, Sean Michael Foster was like, Hey, there's a guy I know from back in the day, and you need to talk to him. And I was like, Oh, tell me more. <laughs> and so i there's did. a guy there's a guy and his name is greg glover he's the uh morning show host at knrk but you also know him as the guy who started uh, arena rock recording company which just so happens that a bunch of bands that we like and that we've actually talked about over the years mm-hmm. have put out records on arena rock all the way from a super drag seven inch to the Harvey danger record to a whole bunch of other ones. So we were like, Hey, Greg, why don't you come on the show? And he was like, guys, (laughs) let's do it. So Guys, guys, guys. So joining us from, uh, far out West, uh, near, um, uh, well, not near now, but, uh, you kept bringing up, uh, the Goonies and that kept, uh, uh, making me laugh. Astoria, because I kept thinking of that pirate ship out in the water. And uh but Greg Glover, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. So you're in Portland? That's right. Uh, that's where I, you do your show.
2: I am. I'm actually in the uh, KNRK studios right now. I just drove back from Goonies Land from Astoria. My wife and I have a couple of little things that we do out there. We go out there on the weekends.
1: So I know you. You probably get asked this a lot or maybe you don't. Did they actually shoot Goonies there or is it just set there? Um they shot it there. That's where the house okay. is. It's oh, Yeah, they, okay.
2: Someone bought that house and complains that people drive up to it all the time. It's like, didn't they know what they were getting involved with <laughs> when they bought it? Really? Yeah, you kind
1: of Oh yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. if you buy the house from a Christmas story, you kind of kind of expect people are going to drive by. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: They've they've turned into a museum, like it's a Christmas museum or something now.
1: Leg lamp in the window.
0: You just got to go all in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, you got to get data up there just to just like waves from the window. (laughs)
0: That would be amazing.
1: Yeah. So here's my this is the first thing that I thought of when we were going to have you on the show. When Jay and I did the Harvey Danger Record, we vehemently disagreed about that record, in terms of I thought it was a worthy album all the way through, and Jay only thought it was a decent single. So would you please chide Jay and tell him (laughs) why he's wrong? I listened to that one on the way back from Astoria the other week, and
2: uh, I felt like I was eavesdropping on a a conversation, and (laughs) I was wanting to chime in a few times, so here we go. (laughs) Here we go. Start chiming away. (laughs) No, I thought it was interesting how... You guys talked about uh, choices of singles and what the second single was going to be and even the next record, King James Version. So, uh, yeah, if my memory serves correct, maybe we can uh, answer some of those questions or whatever.
1: Let's start there, and we'll get get into further backstory. But since that's the most recent thing that we talked about, when we were looking into the history of that, had you started Arena Rock at that point, or were you still interning? Was it with London Sire? Was that the label previous that you worked at or um, interned at well i was actually
2: at the time i was employed at uh london records i was an assistant in the publicity promotion and a and r departments. i had already started um arena rock we put out um a super drag seven inch a couple of years before or the year prior Harvey danger was like i think the fifth or sixth seventh release on the label okay at the time and uh but I actually started arena rock um with a guy who was my intern, Dan Ralph. He was um my partner in Arena Rock. So he and I started the label in nineteen ninety five, I think.
0: Was there a formal relationship between Arena Rock and London or was it just your
2: side thing? No, not at all. It was just kind of oh. my goofy little hobby that, you know
1: gotcha.
2: <laughs> that I did, you know, they there was no affiliation whatsoever at first.
1: Okay. But that was formed in New York City, right? A label? Yes.
2: Yeah. And yeah, I had moved yeah sorry about
1: that no that's okay so i'm just curious how then you discovered harvey danger was it just them playing a show that you saw or did you get a hold of a demo because they're west um, coast I,
2: yeah exactly they were from seattle um i was working at london records um like i said as an assistant and um there was a scout in seattle that was reporting to one of the a&r guys um in new york city for london records they would have scouts you know around the country and do like Mm -hmm. these weekly conference calls and um her name is andrea Mulrain, and uh andrea had sent a demo to one of the a&r guys and i just kept hearing it come out of his office i sat in kind of like an open area and i was like whoa that is so insanely catchy what is that he's like it's this band harvey danger from seattle i'm flying out to see him and um he flew out to see him, and he came back, and I was like, how was it? I, I love that, you know, those demos that you've been listening to. And he was like, yeah, they were kind of so-so live. I think that was his his reasoning for not signing the band. Hmm. And so when he didn't sign the band, I just said, hey, do you mind if uh, I've got this little tiny label? Do you mind if I contact him about maybe putting something out on Arena Rock? And, well, the rest is somewhat history. Okay. I think they wanted to do a single at first and I had heard you know five six seven songs and I was like there's enough here to put out a cool little indie record and so we scraped up three grand and they recorded it with John Goodmanson and um, we pressed up like a thousand or 1200 copies um, hand screened them and I remember stuffing them <laughs> you know they're on the floor of London records and then a while later it got on the radio and then Kind of went crazy there for a little while.
1: So then at what point? I I know that in reading the like the Wikipedia history, that basically like it kind of didn't do anything for a while. Then like one or two radio stations kind of picked it up and started playing the hell out of it. And then that's where people started to get interested in the band. Can you kind of walk us through like what happened at that point? Yeah,
2: we, yeah, like I said, we, we put out like, you know, we pressed up a thousand copies. We were super psyched when um, – do you remember the fanzine Milk, Milk magazine? I think they were out of Milwaukee. Yep. Um, and we got a good review in there. We were like, yes, you know, it was, <laughs> that was kind of awesome. Um, and then the record got played on KN of the End, which is the uh, kind of like our sister station up in Seattle. On a Sunday night show, they played Flagpole Sit-Up. And, while people started calling asking what that song was – The program director up there decided to add the song to regular rotation and it became the number one requested song on the end up in Seattle. So this is kind of weird, full sur- circle. The station I now work for, K&RK, became the second station to ever play Swagpole Um, which is kind of funny whenever it comes up on the morning show or whatever. I just <laughs> kind of <laughs> smile about it. But, uh, yeah, you know, so the program directors, they talk to one another, and we're talking to my now boss, Mark Hamilton. And, you know, he says, what's working for you up there? And he's like, there's this little local band, see, uh, Harvey Danger, this song Flagpole Sitta, it's getting great requests, so it was added here in Portland. Same thing happened. It was, uh, you know, one of the most requested songs on the station, and that just kind of spread down the West Coast to uh, Live 105 in San Francisco, and then when the song got added to K-Rock in Los Angeles, that's when (laughs) my phone started ringing. It just, it kind of became a feeding frenzy for this little unknown band that had, one of the most popular songs on the West coast. And so there were all kinds of labels wanting to sign the band, but in the end, uh, the band and me decided to kind of just keep it with the record label. I was already working for, which was London records. Slash records had become an imprint of, uh, of, um, London at that time as well. So we just kind of farmed it up, you know, to the record label I was already working for, you know?
1: Right. And, were you like able well, to see that Arena as it Rock was...
2: basically sold the label? I mean, sold, sold the the... Uh, the right to the to the uh, record to to London Records, and then they took it from there.
1: So, do you get like a percentage on all the sales going forward at that point, or do you just get like a lump? Like, how does that work?
2: Ar- well, Arena Rock did get a royalty um, for record sales, which you know we put back into the into the label. But at that point, I think we sold it, me and the band, you know, cause we had a 50, 50 deal, whatever was going to happen. Arena rock was 50%. Harvey danger was 50%. And when we decided to, I, I mean, I think the band obviously got an advance from, from London records. I don't know what that was, but we sold where have all the merrymakers gone to London slash. And I think it was a hundred grand at that time. So the band would take 50 arena rock would take 50. Well, then there were attorney fees, probably right. like 10,000. So we each got like 40 grand. We put that back into arena rock and put out some other records after that. I got a nice little, you know, <laughs> I went from being a junior A&R guy to a official A&R guy <laughs> after that happened. But, uh, you know, you think about it these days, hundred grand for a record label that, they're getting a band, a record that had, you know, albeit was recorded for $3,000, but you've got a band that already has the number one song on five stations. And from then on, it was just trying to play catch up.
0: So this happens as the song's breaking the sale.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We were rushing like crazy. We only had a thousand records in the marketplace. Right. So, Mm, I mean, this, this was all being negotiated. It was just, seems like a whirlwind, but, and it really was, because it was, uh, they were trying to get the deal done so they could get records pressed to get them in stores and to keep up with the stations kept adding this, you know, um, as this whole thing was happening.
0: Did you feel, uh, I guess at any point, did you think about trying to keep it yourself and, and see where it took you or, that's or did you, did, did you know question.
2: that? I did no, Cause I don't really think, <laughs> we didn't really know what we were doing mm-hmm. the band or, or arena rock you know it was a tiny little label that was ran out of whatever you know apartment i was living in at the time and there would have been no way we could have kept up with what was going on with it you know
0: yeah
1: yeah it was and happening so fast i would imagine that the distribution in terms of I don't know, who who were you set up with in terms of distribution at that time as opposed to the distribution that London has to, to even exactly. get the record stocked?
2: Yeah, London was uh, distributed at that time by Polygram, and Arena Rock was distributed by <laughs> whoever would take any of our records. <laughs> I mean, I think we were going through several, uh, you know, Garla. I don't even think we had been picked up by Red Eye at that point. We got picked up by Red Eye when we put out elf power but um i literally think i was just calling tiny distributors around the country whoever would take five copies of it <laughs> we would send it to them so there would have been no way we could have uh, we could have kept up with it and and kind of in a way it's something that i was thinking about when i was listening to your your show on the uh, album was that as fast as that song grew it kind of Became the downfall. People know the song or know, hey, I've I've heard that song, I'm Not Sick, But I'm Not Well. But, you know, the band had never hardly played any shows at that point. So people knew the song, but didn't know the band. And that was always the problem moving forward, going into the next record. People knew how to hum, I'm Not Sick, But I'm Not Well, but they didn't know Harvey Danger. They didn't know whether it was a guy or a band or. And that was, became kind of the problem, you know. The song became way bigger than the band.
1: Is that the is that what happens when you don't have a follow up like huge single? Like I feel like, you know, in the '90s, bands that made it past the second single, like everybody knows who's who they are. You know, Collective Soul or Hootie and the Blowfish or whatever <laughs> the band is. If you can get to that second big single, then you kind of get people kind of they familiar with your face. They're familiar with your look. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there are a lot of good songs on that record, but there isn't like the killer second single per se, you know, is that, you think that's what the issue was with that?
2: Well, yeah. If you remember around that same time, there were a lot of those bands that were kind of one and done. I mean, yeah. Fastball, uh, Marcy playground. Um, I don't know if it was the culture of radio at the time or, or the band. And I was, I was thinking about this. See, I always thought that Private Helicopter was going to be the bigger song. That's the song I fell in love with when I heard it blasting out of the A&R guy's office. I loved, I think Flagpole Sitter" was on the demo, but I know Private Helicopter was, and that's the one that I absolutely loved, and that's actually what was chosen as the second single. did a video for that one john flansberg from they might be giants directed it (laughs) i don't know if you haven't even tried to youtube it but um but yeah that was for some reason it just didn't it just didn't take off well the interesting thing is is that um they in between time from when london picked up where have all the merrymakers gone it was like a six to eight month period or maybe it was quicker than that The band wrote another song um, called Sad Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and it was, I thought, an amazing song. And our president of London Records at the time wanted to pack that song onto Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone, but the band didn't want to do it. They couldn't be convinced to do it. So that actually became the first single on the second album, King James Version. Right. I, I remember listening to you guys talk about this. There there were a lot of songs for that first album and maybe some of the reason that it does sound so... I think the band was... They had not been together that long. I think they hadn't even really found their own sound at that point. I think that really came together on the second album, um, that they really started sounding like Harvey Danger for what their... Idea of a band was on the second album.
1: Well, I, I think Jay made a good point during that episode w- that I'll concede that he, <laughs> that while there are really good songs, if you mentioned like Marcy Playground, Sex and Candy, like that's an instantly recognizable lyric, Sex and Candy, or Fastball's the Way, or Foo Fighters Monkey Wrench, like those are, those are like quick little hooks, vocal hooks, and they're instantly like lodged in your head. Don't want to be your monkey wrench. And like the, the hooks on where have all the merrymakers gone are a little more cerebral. And I feel like they don't like, like flagpole sitter nails it, but the song has like the chorus isn't, they don't say that like, and that's, (laughs)
2: yeah,
1: and it almost needed to have like the parentheses afterwards, you know, like, oh "Oh, yeah, well,
2: that's, that's funny when, when, our radio department at London records serviced it to radio. They actually added that on the CD single. It said Harvey danger flagpole set up in parentheses. I'm not sick. I'm but I'm not well. <laughs> they actually put that on there.
1: Cause I think I argued for Carlotta Valdez as the second single. And Jay was like, yeah, but can you really hum Carlotta Valdez? Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember that's what the lyric is.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And- the record, their their audience, which we'll say anywhere from age, what, 15 to 25, a lot of them hadn't seen the movie Vertigo, which the song is based about. It's the Hitchcock film. Oh, yeah, that's Carlotta right. I think Carlotta Valdez. Yeah, I think that was um, uh, Kim Novak's character. Okay. I think, I think so. That's what the song is about. But, yeah, I don't think a lot of 16-year-olds knew who Carlotta Valdez was. Right. The band was definitely cerebral. We'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about it, but like past like like the initial like alternative grunge wave of like ninety three ninety four. Once you get into like ninety five ninety six ninety seven, it becomes like a one and done for a lot of bands that don't like if they don't immediately hit with that second big single. Like when we talked to Jacob Slichter from Semisonic, like. Closing time was huge. And then, like, they had two great songs after that, but none, like, Secret Smile and um, singing, singing in my Your Sleep. S- yeah, great yeah. songs, but singing none of them the- caught on.
2: That's and- so funny you mentioned him because that's exactly what came to mind. I was about to say, Semisonic was another band. Yeah. Yep. Which I was a huge Trip Shakespeare fan. The band okay. Prior to Semisonic, actually. I was just listening to them the other day.
1: I think that they're... they're- I want to say that Dan Wilson is doing something. I know he just put out a new solo record where he like re reinterpreted the songs that he wrote for other people. So like the song he wrote for Adele, he like redid it and um, a bunch of other like big pop artists. So I'm curious. I haven't heard any of it, but, but anyway, I've
0: been be listening to that record uh, this weekend and I didn't realize he wrote that Adele song. I was like, Oh, he's covering Adele. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I didn't know that's what he was doing these days yeah,
1: yeah, the album's called Recovered And it's him Basically covering his own songs, I guess So Interesting Yeah, so I want to backtrack Jay, did we cover everything we wanted to cover with Harvey Danger, was any
0: Well, I, I was curious, so um, uh, They go into the second record Well, I guess mid uh, well, Let me step back, mid first record They uh, are sold The record's sold to London and you go from being the label owner to their what's your relationship at that point and then how do you continue to work with the band going forward or or, or do I, well you...
2: i had i served as their a and r guy moving forward i was no okay. longer just the, the, the label owner but i was 26 27 years old at that time and i think the band and myself included we were just we were winging it. I don't think any of us really knew what, what we were doing or what was going on. You know, it happened so fast, but yeah, the band went, you know, obviously had a larger budget to record the second album. Um, they still used their friend and producer, John Goodmanson. Um, but I think you, you listen to the second album, King James version, and you can definitely, not that it's slick by any means, but you can definitely tell there was more time, uh, spent on it in in the studio. But, um, and we released "Sad Sweetheart of the Rodeo" as the first single from King James' version. Um, there's a really cool video. I don't if you uh, can find it. Um, Ione Sky is in the video. Really cool. It kind of uh, plays this office gal that dreams of being the sweetheart of the rodeo. But uh, the song just didn't. It didn't take off. And around that time, London Records was leaving Polygram to go over to Warner Brothers and just all kinds of, you know, it was just a big merger. The record kind of got forgotten about, and uh, that was kind of it.
1: And it wasn't Slash was gone by then, too, because...
2: Bob Biggs, who was the president of Slash, um, which was an L.A.-based label, he had moved to New York City and brought Slash with him over to Polygram, Slash was originally with Warners. He brought Slash, sold Slash Polygram is what I believed happened, and they merged him, put him in the offices, the London Records offices. So we had two presidents. Peter Kupke was president of London, and Bob Biggs was the president of Slash. And it was basically how to, we asked the band, do you want to be on London Records or do you want to be on Slash? And they thought that Slash was the cooler label, obviously West Coast based, so that's why it got the Slash Records logo on it. Wasn't any other than there's a way to market it,
1: and I think uh, when we when we talked to Kelly Scott from Failure, didn't he say like pretty much when they put out Fantastic Planet that Slash was kind of falling apart at that point that uh, they that was kind probably of
2: probably around the time yeah that, that might have been around the time that Slash was being sold to from Warner's to the Polygram. And then yeah, Slash at that point, Biggs, he was an LA guy. He I don't think he liked New York City very much. So it was around the next merger when London was going to Warner Brothers, he packed up and moved back to Los Angeles. Matter of fact, I kind of drove halfway across the country with him when he was moving back. And so Slash Slash was no more wasn't part of London anymore. And that was kind of the end of Slash, to be honest with you. I think um, that's when he got out of the business altogether. He moved to the desert. <laughs> Literally, he lives in Tehachapi.
1: I only know that because that's in like uh, a little. It's in that uh, Little Feet song, "Willin."
2: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> Tehachapi to whatever he
1: Tonopah or something like. That. I don't even know what, pa, what he's yeah. saying there. And you know, in terms of when King James version came out, I mean, 2000 is such a weird year in terms yeah. of like radio you got you're dealing with napster and radio is kind of imploding in terms of all the stations are getting bought up by clear channel after the uh you know con- the 96 telecommunications act which we've talked about it a bunch of times where you know everything's getting sort of consolidated and then uh you know the labels are all going too yeah well
2: you, remember that was a, the era of like the limp biscuits and right. and all that stuff and um New know. metal. Exactly. There you go.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious as to, I, w- I want to go back to um, sort of the beginnings of arena rock. Cause you mentioned that the first thing that you put out was the super drag seven inch and that arena sort of started. Well, the, the about section on the website talks about um, you and Dan in a bar in New York city, <laughs> deciding to to start the label when you do that obviously you're you're interning at a label so you understand the mechanics of basically a a label by doing that internship and I'm assuming having I don't know did you go to college in in terms of uh some sort of a um music industry position or was that just something that you did outside of that or i'm just curious like what the background is where you would go hey i'm gonna start a label even though i'm working at a label like how did that come together
2: well i think it was dan's idea actually i i was a literature major in college i i grew up in i went to school for a couple i grew up in birmingham alabama went to school at the university of alabama and then moved to tampa florida and uh i was a literature major and um did a little fanzine down when i was in tampa called the bottom 40 my goal was to move to new york city and become a journalist write for spin or rolling stone and um so when i moved to new york um i just sort of i knew a publicist and you know just kind of all who you know right so i i worked for a few minutes for mammoth records they opened a publicity department in new york and that's actually how i met dan dan was my intern at mammoth records and um that And Mammoth Records at the time was trying to sign Superdrag, and that's how we discovered Superdrag.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Through a demo, they had sent Mammoth Records. Mammoth Records really wanted to sign them, and um, of course they ended up signing to Elektra instead, but that's how I found out about Superdrag, and the band toured constantly. They were really on the road, always were, and all would go on to be, but they would come to New York City and we'd go to the shows and we became friends with them. And it was around that time they had signed to Electra, and Dan was like, let's, let's start a little label. And I was like, well, we know a band. We'll see if they give us a song, if they'll give us a song. And they gave us a couple of songs and that's what we, um, was the first arena rock release was uh, N.A. Kicker and the B side was a Husker Doo cover called Diane. Okay. But Dan, I think it was his idea to start the label. He, he kind of, had it he was like yeah we just call this it's easy we just call this place in nashville united record pressing They're i think they're one of the only ones you know still going from that era but um he kind of had it down he wanted to call it stiff goat records and i, I that was kind of what it that was one of his sayings he would always say i don't mean to be a stiff goat or anything and i was like <laughs> that's a terrible name for a label So I something <laughs> is equally terrible to to name it, um, Arena Rock is actually sort of an homage to the shows that my mom raised me as a young single mom. And so I was six, seven, eight years old going to see, you know, Kiss and Alice Cooper and ACDC. And so Arena Rock is sort of an homage to that. I just tried to make it longer to make it sound less cheesy and more pretentious, but it didn't really work <laughs> when calling it the Arena Rock Recording Company. But um, so, yeah, that's how, that's how. Um, we got our first single as we was with the uh, super drag.
1: Okay. I was, yeah, I was wondering how that ended up there in terms of, but that makes sense through if Mammoth, which ended up going on to have a huge record with that seven Mary three record that came out in 95. Right. I think that was the one that also, like kind of broke, not broke them, but like that sold a ton. They
2: also did, did pretty well with, um, Juliana Hatfield, and they had a band called Frente. Remember them from Australia? Yeah. They they had the the Bizarre Love Triangle cover. I think that's what it was. Okay. But, yeah, so I had moved over. I had left Mammoth and basically took the same type of a job at at London Records during that time. And so that's where the London thing comes in. But, yeah, that's how we we found out about Superdrag is that Mammoth was trying to sign them and we just became friends with the band. We would go to every one of their shows, and when they were up in Boston at Fort Apache recording "Regretfully Yours," they invited me to come up to the to the studio when they were making that album, and we just became, you know, because I was Southern, they were Southern. They're from Knoxville. We just hit it off. And uh, Electra thought because it was going to be a year, a year and a half before that album came out, and it kept them active in the indie community to have another indie release. So that's how we we got the. Uh, be okay to do it from electra
1: okay so now in terms of having a label do you have the ability to reissue anything that you've put out at any time or do you have to get like the permission of the band to do that like if you wanted to put that seven inch out again
2: well I'm, i'm still in touch with john davis from the band um most of that stuff has reverted back to the bands at this point. We okay. had really simple, like one or most of the, most of our deals were simple two page contracts that we kind of just used a certain template from someone else had used before. And, and we would license a record for a certain amount of time. It just depends deal to deal. I think with, with Superdrag, they obviously had a good attorney and had a, a longer conj- or you know, more con- or how should I say it more of a strict contract where they would license the record to us for X amount of years. I do know it's all reverted back to the band at this point.
1: Gotcha. Okay. I was just curious about that. Cause it seems like, especially now in the past few years with the resurgence of, you know, vinyl and especially vinyl reissues of stuff that's more obscure since the nineties didn't have a very good track record with releasing vinyl records um mm-hmm. it seems like labels could be taking advantage of that and going through their their back catalog but i hadn't thought about the the reverting back to the uh to the bands i always think of it in terms of like when you hear like the story about like happy birthday like the people who own the copyright to happy birthday like still <laughs> get paid on that like if you put it in mm-hmm. a movie or something they're still getting paid but yeah. uh i guess i guess that sort of is uh good on their part
2: well, yeah, like, for instance, you know, the you guys touched on this, that Where of All the Merrymakers finally came out on vinyl. And right. I, I contacted No Sleep, and I was like, send me one of those. But, uh, you know, King James Version <laughs> never came out on vinyl, but uh, Polygram, um, Universal, uh, who is what, what it is now, That's they own the rights to do it, not that they'll put it out, but someone could go to Universal and special markets like they did for Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone and see if they would license it to them to put out. I'd love to have a copy of King James' version on vinyl.
1: It seems like in that case, and maybe I don't know the details behind the scenes, but it makes sense that if anybody approaches who has like a legitimate way of getting it pressed up, that it's in the best interest to just do it because they're going to make money off of the license, which is just sitting there and not being... You know, I don't know how many new version new copies of King James are being sold on CD, but if you say, "Look, I'm going to press up 500 or 1000 using a pledge music campaign, you know, and sell them at $25 a piece," like it seems like it's that's like a no-brainer, but
2: I, I it's a win-win. Yeah. Right.
1: But there are so many times where we talk to people and they're like, "Well, the label's dragging their feet and they don't want to they you know, I can't even get a hold of anybody there and it's like okay. Whatever. That just doesn't make sense to me. But uh, it's the record industry, so I guess that's things not making that sense is normal.
2: That would be my ultimate. I would love to do, for instance, I've kind of, you know, this is moving forward. I've kind of put a Gone fishing sign on Arena Rock. We did uh, some mineral reissues a couple of years ago for their 20th anniversary tour, which was fun. I, I really enjoy doing the reissues more than I would wanting to sign a new band these days. I find it a lot more rewarding and fun i like digging through the the old stuff the old flyers and you know making that part of the booklet part of the package i really enjoy doing that but i'd love doing that for a for a major label that'd be kind of fun imagine what's what's in those vaults you know
1: oh yeah
0: yeah and that's probably half of it is just nobody wants to take the time to even deal with you know if the record isn't a big seller
2: yeah and how many copies if you pressed up you know, King James version. Would you even be able to sell 500 of them? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think that's the time. That's why the pledge music one campaigns works so well because you know ahead of time what your sales are going to be. Essentially, very so you, true. You know that that to me is the best model I've seen so far. With and we mentioned John Davis earlier. All the Lisa Memory albums are going through pledge. And that, to me, like, makes the most sense because then he doesn't have to shell out, you know, all this cost for making, you know, 5,000 copies if he's only going to sell 2,000 copies. just Exactly. Yeah. Um, Which,
2: by the way, I pledged for the uh, the new, I'm waiting for that new Lisa Marie. I think the digital went out on it, but uh, I can't did. wait for that new one.
1: We, I, Jay and I both did as well. <laughs> We're uh, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. good
0: Yeah, yeah. We've we've had John I'm a, on the I'm a show. Huge t-
2: fan. Twice. I'm a huge fan. There was at one point I think Super Drag was back in the day was they weren't only, you know, friends of mine, but they were my favorite band. I mean, I never missed a show.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit because um so you uh Harvey Danger goes to London or Slash, you become their A and R guy, but you're still doing Arena Rock. By two thousand you've released a couple records between the, that harvey danger record and then you do uh super drag again you come back full circle with them how does that happen and how do you um are you still managing at this point your job at london and arena rock or are you totally focused yeah, on I Arena mean,
2: that's, Rock? that's how i mean arena rock was i mean like i said it was literally just dan and i and it was such a small you know label it was funded by my day job, you know? So um, in between that time after Harvey Danger, we had a little success. We put out a few Elf Power records that did okay. And, um, and then when Super Drag were dropped by Electra, they basically had a finished record that they had done, which became In the Valley of Dying Stars. That record was pretty much recorded for Electra, but Electra decided to drop the band, gave the masters back to the band, And then that's when the band came back to us and said, hey, we've got this awesome record, which is, I think, one of the greatest rock records ever. I still stand by that. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we 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 put it out and the band hit the road and kept (laughs) kept going and going and going.
0: I 100 percent agree. I think that's that's for me their best record and probably one of my all time favorites. Um, Yeah, me too. So they approached you.
2: Cool. we had stayed in touch, you know, I mean, I was, we were friends. So, um, it just made perfect sense. We had, you know, had a little money from the Harvey danger stuff to put back into it because, you know, super drag, had, had a minor hit with sucked out. So they had, you know, sold a couple hundred thousand records. So, you know, we would need to, you know, think I'd signed a deal with ADA to distribute arena rock at that point. So we had the distribution and, uh, you know, the band, could go out and play shows and make money on the road and do it, you know, the way they wanted to Not have to make the records they wanted to make with us, you know?
0: So how did the, uh, at this time of the, of the label, how, how do the economics work? Are you paying, are you helping bands do recording or are you, are you letting them uh, handle that on, on their own and you're just providing uh, distribution and promotion? Uh, what, what's the sort of business relationship that you have with was, the bands at this point?
2: Well, I guess it was different. From band to band i mean we when we did the elf power record um they would record it the first couple we put out they recorded themselves and then we i remember we we hired dave fridman uh to do a dream and sound the elf power record the third elf power record i believe and i think we i had a friend that knew him who managed him actually still does and uh he had some off time like two weeks and he said, "Hey, if you get the band up here, I think he charged us five grand, which was a lot for us to pay to record an album at the time. But uh, that's how a dream and sound got done. But with Super Drag, it was um within the valley of dying stars. Most of that was banked by Electra, backed by Electra.
0: just crazy to me to be approached by uh, the band, and then that record's done in hand, essentially." <laughs> And, and ready to oh, go yeah. I, I can't imagine listening to that the first time i mean what was your what was your oh reaction
2: i was just like I, I remember hearing it you you know you put on keep it close to me and you know that song is written about the entire situation that john was going through trying to please a major record label but you know lighting the way i mean that's the best song Foo Fighters never wrote. You know, it's it's just, (laughs) I heard it and I was just like, oh my God. day it's still one of my bright pavilions on there it's still one of my all-time favorite rock records you know i was releasing a record by my favorite band you know i was Uh we, we were we were over the moon about them
1: so when you look at a band in terms of what you want to do with them is it do you have to have that sort of feeling like i i'm in love with this band i'm in love with this or can you look at it from a strictly sort of not commercial but just an economic standpoint and go i think that this has a potential to sell x number of copies and i'm going to take a risk on this even if i don't like love this band in terms of i want to go to see every show that they're at but you hear it and you go wow there's something interesting going on here and i just want to be a part of it does it have to be all in to to put out a record
2: well we we never did it to have commercial success we we I mean, with Harvey Danger, I knew it was catchy as hell, but we never expected it to get on the radio. You know, we didn't have the means. We we all got lucky, let's face it. But um, I don't think we ever we, – we definitely had a lot more, you know, say commercial failures than we did success with Arena Rock, that's for sure. But um, we just had to like it, you know. I mean, I, one thing I am proud of, whether, you know, we had much success or not is the fact that I felt like we were – kind of a diverse you know record label that my favorite labels i got a chance to work for you know with seymour stein who started sire i mean you know not only did he have the replacements which is one of my all-time favorite bands but he had madonna you know and then slash had x and the germs but then they would also have like the violent Femmes or Del Fuegos, and i kind of wanted arena Rock to be a label where you knew it was going to be cool but you didn't know what you were getting. You know, there's a lot of labels out there that you can kinda tell what the music's gonna sound like when you see the logo. I don't think you could do that with arena rock. And that's kind of the one, you know, we had some pretty diverse artists or roster I should say.
1: Yeah, definitely looking over the roster, there's a lot of there most of the names I recognize and some that I don't. One that I wanted to ask you about that I remember very distinctly having a lot of buzz when their album came out was Creeper Lagoon. And Jay, you Indeed. probably remember, like, take mm-hmm. me back, take back the universe and give me yesterday. When that first single came out, Wrecking Ball, like, DreamWorks was going to be like the next big label. They had put out the Blinker the Star album, and there was a whole bunch of stuff that it seemed like that was going to be a huge deal. And then, something like it just didn't happen. And then you ended up putting out that came out in 2001, and then a year later, you put out their EP. Remember the future. Like, what was the, what was the relationship at that point with DreamWorks? Like, were they still with them, or had they gotten dropped by that point? Or I'm just curious as to like the timeline.
2: They had been dropped, and
1: uh,
2: Ian, the main lead singer, had already left the band. So Creeper Lagoon at that point was Sharky. Um, So that EP is not with Ian who was actually the lead singer. That was EP was with because Sharky pretty much started the way I think it was. He started Creeper Lagoon. And at that point it was back to just him. And he had, uh, I was a fan of the band. Flash tried to sign them <clears throat> actually. So that's how I, my relationship with them started as someone else in the A&R department. She actually ended up marrying <laughs> Sharky. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, at that point the band had pretty much dissolved and it was just sharky.
1: Okay. I think it was a big deal here because those guys were from Cincinnati and being in Columbus, we're only two hours away from Cincinnati. So anything that happens to anybody who's ever lived in Ohio at some point that's in a band, like we all kind of hear about it, whether it's Cleveland or Cincinnati or Dayton or Akron or whatever, if anybody's in a band that gets signed, it's like, Oh, what, what's going on? like, I never realized they were from Cincinnati.
2: I thought they were always uh, from San Francisco.
1: No, they were, like, I think in high school they were in, like, a punk band. And then they moved out. They moved out to San Francisco in the early 90s to start Creeper Lagoon.
2: Gotcha.
1: So, but yeah, like, you know, the Afghan Whigs haven't been from Cincinnati in 30 years, but they're still, that's their hometown. You know, Greg Dooley's been in LA and in New Orleans since, you know, 1992 or three or whatever it is. So. Uh, yeah, it's basically the same thing. But if you have any Ohio roots, <laughs> people, people here, especially they if hang bands, on to them. Yeah, they hang on to them.
0: <laughs> well, that period of the the label, you almost became like uh the land of second chances. I like <laughs> Dragon ends up there, Creeper Lagoon ends up there. You did a Sheila Vine EP, uh-huh. like a lot of bands that I think Tim and I really liked a lot that maybe didn't get a good um. Didn't get good support or just didn't break through as much as we hoped in the '90s. Like as the 2000s started, it seemed like Arena Rock was a place that some of these bands were popping up to put records out. Was that
2: halfway home? Maybe we just felt that we could that the marketing had already been done for us. Maybe that's <laughs> what we were thinking at the time. We didn't have to thank you, major label, for spending two years <laughs> marketing this band. We'll take and sell twenty thousand and call that a success, whereas you would deem that as a failure.
1: that's not a bad uh that's not a bad um (laughs) marketing plan you just scout everybody's getting dropped yeah well even with like the life and times their second record like they had you know lineage with shiner and and uh Uh you know a lot of people knew that band so i instantly when you saw oh they're in a new band Like I don't even remember when Suburban Hymns came out, but I remember like people saying, Oh, we gotta check out the new Life and Times album I'm like who the Life and Times? Like it's the guys from Shiner and they just put on a tra- Tragic Boogie and I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll go check it out. Oh, it's on Arena. All right. Great band. Yes. The Life and
2: Times every I- album. I knew Shiner, but I I didn't know the Life and Times. They actually were a recommendation from another band on our label um that we did a band called pilot to gunner um we i claim that they were probably the only straight ahead rock band from williamsburg around 2000 2001 that was their only problem no one was doing that that was the kind of the when the yeah yeah yes and interpol and all that kind of stuff right. started to happen although we did have success with a band called calla around that time that was kind of in that around that scene but it was pilot to gunner who actually recommended that we get in touch with Alan Epley from the life and times. And that was a, I I was already living out here at that point, but a lot of great bands that, uh, you know, through the years that, sort. I was thinking about it. It's, I don't have kids, but, uh, the label, the roster sort of like having kids in a way it's like, some are more successful than others, but you don't love one more than the other. You know, you kind of love them all.
0: So, uh, time for the hard question. Then, if somebody comes up to you now and says, "Oh, you, I just heard you own a record label. That's pretty cool. Uh, what was the label like? Or what? What's because it now it's on. You mentioned it's kind of a uh, gone fishing. I think you put it. What record do you hand them to say this is what this is what Arena Rock's about?
2: Good grief! That is that is a tough one. <laughs> Um, I mean, I I. I don't know what the one would be because we were so diverse. I thought, you know, I mean, we would have everything mm-hmm. like super drag. Um, the Calla record was really big for us. That was good. Um, um, I I loved at the time early in the early part of doing arena rock. We had a guy by the name of Dean Wilson who recorded as Ilya Kuriakin. and that's some of my favorite stuff. The two releases we put out of his i'd say because the label kind of goes through different periods right you know you start it and then we were around for a good 10 years putting out albums but i would say we're probably most known for super drag in the valley of dying stars or cala televised you No, know, the one there was also a band from here in portland called swords project or swords they're actually the reason i moved to portland i knew i would at least have six friends they had six six people in the band but they were they were an awesome band the gloria record that was another one that which was the kind of a spinoff from mineral that was a a really successful record for us but hard to say I, i couldn't choose just one of them
1: so i have a i have a question that jay and i back in the day we would have been filling out you know uh, PR, not PR, um, uh, promotional kits with our band's demos and, sh- you know, sending them off in padded envelopes to a hundred and so indie labels around the country trying to get our band signed. Did you actually listen to every bad band that would send in their demo or did you, could you like look at the label and go, no, I'm not signing this new metal band who have a, a picture of a fist on the front and, you know, songs with lots of Z's in their title or something.
2: Uh, we, we got a lot of that having a name like arena rock. You can imagine <laughs> <laughs> people that didn't kind of quite get that. We would, uh when, when we did finally get an office in Williamsburg, um, my friend, Scott, who was in the band pilot to gunner, we would save up the demos over, over a month long period and have this big box and, Scott would come in and have Scott's demo demolition and put them on in the office. And we would know within 10 seconds, whether something was good or not. But uh, those were interesting afternoons, put it that way.
0: Well, Did you find any bands that way?
2: Yeah. You Did know, you? The, the way I found Elf Power was, was pretty interesting actually when I was doing, um, when I was an assistant in the publicity department, this was right around the time that we were, you know, putting out the Harvey danger record before all the craziness happened, different magazines would send me the press clippings, you know, so I could show my publicist to say, Hey, you know, you're sending this guy free CDs. He actually reviewed it, keep him on the mailing list kind of thing. And I remember there was a magazine out of Athens, Georgia called flagpole. And um, I just liked looking through the magazines to see what was going on in each region. And I saw, A listing for a band that was playing live called Elf Power. And I was like, this is a weird and cool name. And so uh, I just decided to pick up the phone. I knew that there was a Wuxry Records in Athens. I called Wuxry Records and said, hey, I'm calling from New York. I have a little indie label. Do you know anything about this band called Elf Power? And the guy was like, hey, hang on. One of the guys in the band works here and put Andrew Rieger, who's the lead singer, on the phone with me. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, do you or do you guys have anything? He sent me a tape or a cassette or whatever it was at the time. And that's how we signed Elf Power.
1: Wow. That's totally random.
2: (laughs) Very random. It was kind of cool, though. Um, I'm trying to think if we did anything else through... demo we had a band called serene we put out one record with and that was a demo that was sent to us i'd have to i'd have to look through actually put out one minus the bear ep and they actually sent us that they were in between labels at the time or thinking of switching which they did for one ap but they sent that to us and we put out the minus the bear ep there were a few things that that we we did we did a Band called Wine Chuggers that we did a limited edition hand screen thing that sent me a demo. So yeah, there were there were some things that we actually signed that were sent to us.
0: We talked about uh, we had a roundtable about compilation records but, uh, a week or two ago, Tim, and yeah, um, we had a different couple different takes on them. Um, you don't see them much anymore. They they sort of seem to have uh, sort of uh, passed their uh air of importance or necessity what did you i know you did a couple what what were your um take on on doing compilations how did you view them Uh, were any of them successful were they
2: um, we did one we did one called this is next year um mm -hmm. and it was a brooklyn based compilation and it was god i can't even remember how many bands we did but i think that was the first interpol song that was ever released was on there And I just, I was living in Brooklyn, and, you know, at that point, you know, it wasn't, I think this is prior to the whole early 2000s, you know, New York City, Brooklyn music kind of resurgence. But no one had done it before, and I was like, there's a lot of great musicians. The prerequisite was that at least one band member had to live in the borough of Brooklyn. We did it, and we did it for a, a animal shelter there. It was kind of a benefit. I'm a big, we have three cats and a dog, so we're, we're big, uh, animal folks. So, but that was just fun to do. And then we did one here in Portland called, uh, did I get the titles wrong? We did one here. No, the one here was called bridging the distance. And we did that for an organization called pair, um, which is, uh, for teens. So I was like, well, I did one, and that one, the idea of that one was kind of having bands do cover songs, like 70s and 80s cover songs. Like Menomina did a Michael McDonald <laughs> song or Doobie Brothers track. And um, the Joggers did a Yes Roundabout, I think is what they did. <laughs> but Yeah. Wow. But uh, those are long out of print. You might be able to find them online at this point.
1: Whoa. Chris Walla from Death Cab does... Shattered Dreams by Johnny hates Jazz. Oh yeah, that is a great song. I need to hear that. I forgot about. He does a great version of it too. Whoa, I haven't thought about that song in a long time. There's a reason for that. <laughs> Wait, the Dandy Warhols do she, "She Sells Sanctuary." Yeah,
2: it's it's a bizarre. It's not a straight up take on it either. Oh, I would imagine not. All right. Well, now yeah. I got to track a- this down. Yeah, some of them are you know straight takes, and some of them are kind of reworkings that you wouldn't even recognize the original.
1: Interesting. So, do you There's have copies of project. that? Do you have copies of that in your basement? Because I have so copies of, of, of stuff in my basement. That's
2: where stuff is, is. in my basement. Yeah. So let's say maybe I'll I'll rummage through that stuff this week and make you guys each a uh, little arena rock forgotten classics.
1: <laughs> non, well,
2: non-classic
0: well if you have a, a a copy of uh in the valley dying stars on vinyl i'm sure you're aware that those are worth about 180 dollars <laughs>
1: yeah i think i got a few tucked away <laughs> for a rainy day are those are those retirement uh versions there or, uh... No.
2: no i literally think i have like eight copies somewhere in the basement wow so-
0: and those, uh, the, does John own the rights to, to those to reissue them, or do you still have the ability to do that?
2: John, I think um, they're, they definitely reverted back to the band like 10 years ago. I think we only had a 7- or 10-year license on those. So, yeah, John, come on. Put them on Pledge Music. Do it.
1: <laughs> well, he's done other... Um, the, the label that put out the first Lease of Memory... Um, they put out. Oh, side one dummy. Yeah, they they actually did. Um, what is the? Uh, the, not the what's Regretty the second record?
2: Word. Oh, they did. Um, head trip in every key.
1: Yeah, they reissued that. So that's right. I remember. You know, there's. It's possible that. I think they did. Well,
0: they isn't did. that the? that's the record John likes, right? He doesn't like the first one. So maybe um, there's maybe, there, yeah, maybe that's that the was, reason why that, that one got
2: there. I was thinking about that. Like head trip in every key is sort of like their Pinkerton, you know, they're, they're hardcore fans, you know, people know them by the blue album. Their hardcore fans love Pinkerton. That's sort of the way it was yeah. with, with super drag. Although I, I still think a lot of people might think that, um, in the Valley of dying stars is, is the best I do. I think that not just because I put it out. That's just my favorite.
1: Regretfully, yours did get reissued by Side One as well. That one that got reissued in two thousand thirteen, and then Head Trip got reissued um, by Side One in two thousand fourteen. So chronologically speaking, it's due. In the Valley of Dying Stars is due for its reissue. And then and hey
0: last call for Vitriol is uh not bad either. I mean, that's right up there for me, so.
1: And that has never been pressed to vinyl as far as I know.
0: Let's do a super let's do a package, put them together. And I'm sure there were some EPs and singles that came out and do like a whole little box set.
2: Yeah. I'll see if I can find some old DAT tapes with some original versions. I've got boxes and boxes of stuff that I need to go through that You can
1: just send that all to us. All those dats. We'll go through it. We'll happily go through all that Come stuff. Come on up. Come on to Portland. Come on up here I'll uh
2: I'll give you the keys to the to the vault.
1: I mean I understand like a lot of artists are like, I want to leave the past in the past and I don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. But at the same time you hear people who are complaining like well I can't make any music selling or can't make any money anymore selling music. It's like, well, sometimes you kind of have to go back into the vaults because that's what people yeah. are are interested in, in terms of, you know, like we mentioned, like Last Call doesn't have a vinyl version, so that would be nice to get that pressed on vinyl. You,
0: you just touched on something, though, that's interesting. Um, you mentioned, I don't know if you're joking or not, but you did mention that you have, like, tape or some sense of an archive or some semblance of an archive is that the case and like is that a is it a burden to take care of stuff like that like i know major you know labels use uh you know services to make sure all that stuff is and stored correctly and um so Guys, they this can be stuff
2: is in a taped up cardboard boxes and i just <laughs> i wish i right. had it organized it's literally in my in in my basement and there's no rhyme or reason stuff is just
0: is it analog tape? Harvey
2: danger I did find one of the early demo cassettes that I mentioned it to to Sean from Harvey danger the song the cassette with a song called foot controlled activator and he doesn't even have a copy of that so I need to transfer that cassette and somehow have that uh done digitally so i can get him that song that's a reminder i need to do that this
0: is what i'm saying you've got yeah. all this stuff that we'll all never right, get that's hurt what I'm again
2: do in my spare time. i'll put that on the <laughs> that's on the yellow sticky i'll start going through this stuff <laughs> and i'll I'll start posting photos of it on you know for hashtag tbt <laughs>
1: tim you wouldn't be able to sleep oh my <laughs> god it would drive me nuts because <laughs> I mean, we were in a band that was that did nothing. I mean, we put out you know three records and sold five hundred copies or what have you. And I'm like, I keep track of every. There's like the one guy in in Jawbreaker who's like kept that band alive online for like twenty five years. Like that's kind of me. Like I'm like, where's the demo? for the third song that we recorded back when we were in college that one night, you guys remember that one night when we were doing the, and like Jay will look at me like, what in the hell are you talking about? I'm like, I have it in my notebook that we wrote a song that this particular <laughs> night and, uh, it was called pineapple. And he was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'll
2: find the dat that has, did you guys know that, uh, Bob Pollard sings on, uh, a song on last call for vitriol, the, the last super drag record we did no no
0: what's he what's he saying on yeah
2: there's a it's it's buried but it's uh, he um sings on baby goes to 11 we uh we uh paid him I knew his manager and so he sent a dat to us in the mail of him uh you know see i wish i could find that dat that just has pollard's you know vocals isolated on it but yeah he we, I think we stickered that on the cover, you know, Baby Goes to 11 featuring GBV's Bob Pollard. But, yeah, if you listen close, that's him in the background.
0: Wow. It, did, now uh, that you said it, it kind of has a little bit of a guided-by-voices feel to it. I never totally. made that connection before.
2: Oh, yeah, they were – we were all huge guided-by-voices fans. I know John was too. We they Actually, somebody sent me something the other day. He was my intern at Arena Rock – he sent me a message on Facebook and it was this hand screen poster that Brian Ralph, um, Dan Ralph's brother, he's the guy that basically hand screened all those Harvey danger album covers. And he did the artwork for like the, the plane on the, the super drag first single we did. He, he did that artwork. He had, he was working out of Fort Thunder, which is this giant loft in Providence. But uh, anyhow, he did these hand screen posters that we did for a tour when super drag open for guided by voices. And I don't even think I have one of those anymore. So like
1: my intern has it. See, I just think stuff like that would be fun to like throw up on SoundCloud. Like, even if you're not going to sell it, just like here's Bob's isolated vocals from baby goes to 11 just so people can hear. Cause I love like hearing like David Lee Roth's isolated vocals for like, Oh yeah. You know, a first (laughs) Van Halen record and you're like, what? This is crazy. Those are hilarious. So I, I want to just go back. You mentioned that you grew up in Alabama. So I'm gre- I'm guessing that's like late '70s, '80s is when you're growing up there. Do I have that roughly?
2: Yeah, yeah I'm 48, so
1: okay.
2: the math. I was born in '69, so yeah, it was '76, '77, '78 when my mom was, you know, still young and hip and taking me to all these shows. And, you know, I was babysat by the radio and her record collection. And then she bought me a Craig eight track stereo. I think the first two records I ever owned were Alice Cooper goes to hell and Steely Dan's Asia. Wow. I'm still, still a huge Steely Dan fan. I think my mom bought that one for herself. Oz Skagg's Silk Degrees. That was one of them. But I was always uh, kind of Babysat. I was either playing sports or listening to records or the radio. Did you play music? 80s guy too. Nope. Terrible. Tried playing bass, but wasn't for me. Maybe that's why I always just wanted to be involved in music some other way. But uh, I would say, you know, I graduated from high school in '87. I'm I'm a big '80s guy. I think I had to pick. I couldn't pick one of my favorite releases or just one favorite arena rock release, but I can pick a favorite decade of music, and I think it would be the 80s.
1: What do you lean towards in terms of what came out that, because that's a pretty diverse era in terms of music.
2: I Again, I I love it all. I was a huge U2 fan early on. I uh, got a cassette of October and then went backwards and got Boy. I bought their worst one first. But U2 War is like one of my, my favorites. But I, I loved it all. I mean I you know, I'll listen to Mr Mister. <laughs> so I where was a you... huge Hooters fan. I was a big fan of the Hooters and the Outfield. Those were two of my favorites. But then but then you know it was U two and R. E. M. So and I still love it love it all.
1: So did Johnny you have jazz. friends who like I'm curious about Alabama in the eighties. Like where are you getting U two and REM records? Are they like at your local like is there a record record store you're getting those at or did your mom bring those home or like how did the you one find thing those
2: that well, i can tell you the one thing we definitely didn't have it on the radio right um when we got cable television in Hueytown, alabama it changed my life because uh, we had mtv uh, mtv go. i there my the homework went out the window i would keep it on 24 hours a day and uh that just opened my mind to so much that's that's where I discovered, you know, that's when my eyes, plus uh, the, one of the original VJs, Alan Hunter, I don't know if you remember him.
1: Yeah. But mm-hmm.
2: He was, um, I kind of thought he was cool and he was from Birmingham. I was like, wow, he's on MTV and he's from Alabama. But uh, yeah, this is definitely. And, and like I said, when I was in high school, you know, I was pretty responsible. I worked, when I wasn't playing baseball, I worked 40 hours a week and my mom co-signed, um, 85 for a brand new Honda CRX that I made the payments on. And so I had wheels. I could go, my mom would let me as long as I, you know, I didn't drink. I was a good kid. Um, I would drive from Birmingham to Atlanta on a school night to see you two on the unforgettable fire tour or NXS on the kick tour and drive two and a half hours back to Birmingham. And make it to school tired the next day, but I would have my Hooters t-shirt on or whatever it was.
1: Those CRXs were the little hatchbacks, right? I think like yeah, everybody in my high school my had one.
2: Oh yeah. Everybody used to tell me my car looked like a roller skate or a tennis shoe. I thought it was cool.
1: <laughs> they were cool for, well, like a little while. Yeah. I remember those because they were, they had, they were fast. Like, well, the ones that had the, um,
2: the SI.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they were quick Mine wasn't the SI, unfortunately. Uh, okay.
2: But <laughs> hey, but it was a new car. It was reliable, and I made the payments on it. My <laughs> girlfriend at the time liked it.
1: <laughs> nice. Those in no, M- the Fieros MTV, were the coolest cars in my high yeah, school. Yeah, MTV, though, was, was, was huge for me. And
2: that was back when you would see, you know, it would go from ZZ Top to Berlin to Taco to Van Halen. I mean, it was... You know, and you read the books about it these days, and yeah, it was a corporate thing, but they had to play almost anything because there weren't that many videos back in the early days, you know right.
1: I don't think people understand how like revolutionary that was. Like people talk about now that YouTube is the is the MTV of this mm-hmm. generation. but there's they don't have the same curation in terms of like if you're watching youtube, you're you're just watching a video and then the playlist is just stuff that people have watched that's similar to that whereas with MTV like you said you're going to get like 2 butting up against Van Halen butting up against ZZ Top butting up against you know DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince like it's going to be a totally different experience and then even into
2: get- the yeah even into like the the mid 80 84 85 you know MTV had been around for a handful of years i can literally remember being in my room in high school, doing my homework and seeing the video for Marillion's Kaylee. And I was like, this is a cool song. And, you know, and I had to have the album. You know, there were a few things that, you know, that I saw that I immediately, you know, had to have. Right. Not that I'm a huge Marillion fan. But <laughs> I stick up for Misplaced Childhood. That's a good album.
0: It was definitely a... Um... It was a special time. It's like you talk to younger people. (laughs) Don't want to sound like the old man, but the combination of the the curation times the necessity, like they didn't have other programming, so they had to play music all the time. Um, So they were playing a lot of different stuff, and then it started to get a little bit where you get, you know, specialty shows, which you get the...
2: Remember Sunday nights, they had IRS as the cutting edge, into the well the young ones that's kind of when they first you know remember the young ones
1: no uh, no that was that must have been just ones. before
2: that was probably i can't remember what year but they had irs is the cutting edge and then they would and then they would go into 120 minutes remember okay. that, that yeah, was, oh yeah that, that was kind of the the more left of center stuff but you could discover a lot of cool stuff on MTV back in the day.
0: So when you were at, uh, mammoth in London, what, what kind of bands did they have at that time? What, what were those labels doing? And, and I guess, how did you, I mean, you were interning and had various tasks, but sort of how did you work at the label and what did you learn while you were there?
2: I think mammoth, they had just had a hit with that. We mentioned them earlier. Frente with the new order cover, our love triangle. I think it was, um, they had Juliana Hatfield, at the time, I'm trying to think. Oh, they had a band. Do you remember uh, uh, John Strom, who was in the Blake Babies? He had formed a, a new band called Velo Deluxe at the time. They had that. And then when I, when I moved over to London, this was when I... Uh, here was that, 95, 94, 95. Um, they had just had a lot of success with the Meat Puppets, with uh, the song Backwater, their album Too High mm. to Die. Yep. that was that was a platinum record for them and they also had kind of a out of left field they had licensed uh Portishead dummy from Go Discs I think over in the UK they were doing a lot of that stuff and we also had DJ Shadow came out around that time at London Orbital tell you what it I don't know it was good it was just good for me to kind of see all aspects of the business i mean i was an assistant. I was answering phones in the publicity department, the promotion department, and the A&R department. I mean, it was a lot of work, but I got to kind of see it from the inside, which someone growing up loving music to see kind of how the whole thing worked. And then to have my own little hobby label on the side was of like a lot of fun, mostly about the people you meet along the way, though. I think doing arena rock, I was, as I was taking this trip down memory lane, when you guys said we were going to be doing this, I, thought of all the awesome people that you know i've met some lifelong friends that like i said i'm still in touch with john davis guys in pilot to gunner the guys from the gloria record you know even if it's just through facebook or whatever we had an awesome band called mink lungs that i'm still in touch with those guys and gal but uh the Cala folks but it's just all about the people you meet along the way and we we had a lot of fun too did you have any mentors you know, I Bob Biggs from Slash when he came when he moved to New York for those couple of years, I and even working when we joined with uh, Dire Records. I mean, dinners with Seymour Stein hearing those stories. Oh my god. About the replacements and Johnny Thunders and those were I mean, those are labels that I really, really liked, like because they were diverse, you know. It would didn't have to be one certain style of music. But it was good. I mean, Sire went from the Ramones to Madonna to Ice-T to Katie Lane, <laughs> Talking Heads, Pretenders. I mean, those are right. legendary, legendary acts. And Sire, I mean, Slash was really diverse, too.
1: So at what point, what, what are, I mean, put it this way, was there ever a point where arena rock was the main thing for you? Or was there? Oh, were you always at like a London or or another job? Or was I there...
2: always had to have the? It's kind of even to this day. I've got my hobbies that I do, but I've always funded it by having, you know, a real job. Or <laughs> wouldn't call it radio or being in the music business a real job. But uh, well, I've made it this far. But, but if no, it pays the I've, bills um, exactly. Right. But you know. To this, to this day, you know, I mean, I do the morning show here, but that enables me to, you know, my wife and I have a little store that we run out in Astoria on the weekends, a little kind of, I've got a music room in the back. We sell vinyl, but the front of it is kind of women's vintage clothes and stuff. We, I've got, I've always had goofy hobbies, but to answer your question, no, I never did it full time. Hmm. uh, we never had someone step up and want to bankroll us. So I had to work. Uh.
1: (laughs) See that's interesting because I think from the outside, like especially back in the early two thousands, like Jay and I would look at Arena and go, "I wonder where their office is and like what, how, like where, how many people are on staff?" and we would look at like that because we assume like well they've got Super Drag and they've got you know all these bands and we have like a total misconception, or at least we did, of like how that all like I always assumed that like you know, like Mac and Laura running Merge, like, oh, they've got some, like, huge facility, (laughs) like, when they're really just running it out of their house, and they just, like, you know, but you you see, like, this long list of bands, and you just assume, oh, they must have a big warehouse, that they're housing all of these records, and I, I think when, you know, when you're someone like us, when we're, like, in our early 20s, and have no con we haven't worked in the record industry we're just making noise and stuff like that and assuming that someone's going to want to put it out at some point we have a complete misconception did you ever run into that where people think oh you work in the music industry you know do you have all these luxuries that you were like no that's not really the way that this this runs Uh,
2: arena rock was ran on a lot of hustle and a lot of smoke and mirrors no (laughs) um the luxury i did have was uh free shipping you know what i mean when i when i worked for uh (laughs) go through some of the the bills i was able to uh ship a few things here and there uh courtesy of their ups account
1: nice (laughs) so you when you're at london you're like hey i need to drop this in the mailroom. and uh how do you think pollard's vocals
2: got overnighted man
1: (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) (laughs) not on my dime uh, yeah I totally i understand that I was working for a cookie company and uh booking a tour for our band and was using like you know this is like 2001 so it's like I didn't have home internet like at or like the way that our company did so if I'm like researching uh, anything i'm not doing it on my dial-up at home it takes you know five minutes to download a 30 second mp3 I'm at work what are you doing over there? I'm collating spreadsheets. Uh.
2: Hopefully, there's a statute of limitations that's passed on this, so we're not uh, getting ourselves yeah. into any trouble.
1: I think <laughs> I think I think we're both okay that we we misallocated company resources for uh, I, I personal so. gain. <laughs> uh, well, even
2: it reminds me. You remember the band uh, from here, Menomina? I remember yes. them. Yeah, their their first um, CD they did came in this crazy, elaborate package. It was like a flip book, you know? It was like 100 pages. And uh, it was one of the guys, I think he worked at a Kinko's, right? How do you think he got that done?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's
2: awesome. You have to do that. I think I read that. that somewhere. He told me that. I'm not sure.
0: <clears throat> how uh, how long were you at London? When When did you leave?
2: I was there. I was at London from 95... Uh, oh, I can... 2001, right after nine eleven, 11 London Sire, at that point, was shut down in December. Nine eleven happened, and literally a couple months later, it was closed. And that, so, I stayed in New York for a couple of years, and I went back to work for Sire um, under Seymour Stein as an A&R guy for a couple of years. But that was kind of the the caboose of the gravy train that was the the music business you touched on that earlier yeah. you know in the early 2000s it was like the Napster thing no one was really buying records you know iTunes hadn't really been established so it was a weird time but uh, that's when i packed up and i figured i was not going to find another major label job to fund whatever hobby i came up with next so i hightailed so- it out here
0: What were some of the conversations, I mean, take us inside of uh, labels trying to figure out where the world's going um, in terms of, uh, you know, their business? What What were some of the conversations going on and what was the overall feel?
2: I remember at that time, my interest really turned more to doing arena rock because I wasn't into the writer, you know, the early 2000s things had you know, the music industry that would everything had turned heavy. It was, the, uh, you know, the new metal stuff or either it was really pop. I remember London records wanting to go a really like, you know, the manufactured band, pop stars, stuff like that. And I was like, I was kind of hanging on for dear life. You know, at that point just going, I want to do arena rock. I don't want to be part of whatever trend that was going on at the time. Cause it just wasn't my taste, you know? I mean, look at the stuff I was putting out on arena rocket. They definitely, you know, in the Harvey danger thing that was just, you know, lightning that struck once. But, um,
0: it sounds like they were, would you describe them as, as desperate or lost?
2: I would say lost more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Music industry is always a desperate business. You know, you're, you're give me the hit, give me the hit, you know, but, uh, I think they were more lost than anything. That'd be a good way to describe it.
1: Gotcha. Was there was there anyone that you signed in that post nine eleven period that that you looked to and go, well, that was a like even, they might not have sold well or it might not have been the right market, but there it, it was a a band that you signed to Sire that you enjoyed.
2: Yeah, I'm, and and you know what I'd signed or would look at for Sire most of the time or London wasn't necessarily. I mean I knew a band like Mink Lungs, you know, from Brooklyn wasn't gonna, you know they were quirky and awesome and great live band, but I knew that really wasn't what Sire or London was looking for. Find a couple bands signed a band from Atlanta, a rock band called Billionaire, that I literally thought was gonna be huge and
1: Oh yeah.
0: That, yeah. that that band's been on our stack of uh, to do's
2: yeah. <laughs> I have some interesting stories about them. They were awesome guys too, and I remember everyone was trying to sign them. They were actually being represented by, or represented by Jake Ottman, who was Super Drags manager early on. So that's how I. That was my in with with them. I knew I kind of had, even though I wasn't as successful or you know didn't have the pedigree some of the other A and R guys. Plus I was Southern. <laughs> I was from Birmingham. They were from Atlanta, and I could out drink the other guys so I would stay out with them later. (laughs) There was also another band from London called Grand Theft Audio. And that was kind of me signing a band that was around the same time as the new metal stuff that they were they weren't new metal but they were had this amazing front man. I was like, he's the second coming of Billy Idol. I thought they were they were they were fun too. But no one, you know, I was a one hit wonder. But uh, yeah, I, I moved here in 2004. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I'd had a little bit of money saved up. I continued to do Arena Rock for a few years once I got out here. Like I said, I had Swords Project, awesome band that uh, just became Swords. But I, I didn't really know what I was going to do, and it was right around the time that this station KNRK 94.7 was was changing. And, uh, our promotion guy, who's one of my best friends, Bill Carroll had was coming out here to do a West coast swing. He was our promotion guy at London that took Harvey danger to number one on the alternative charts. He was like, let's get together for a beer. We got together. He was like, what are you doing? I was like, I have no idea. Maybe I'm going to go and serve coffee, wait tables again. I have no idea. He was like, well, Hey, uh, KNRK, you remember Mark Hamilton? Yeah. He said, well, he said he's looking to hire music people and not hire typical DJs. And he was like, man, you should, I'll set you up a meeting, but don't fuck this up. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) I, I thought that, you know, they were going to look for, you know, like a music news guy, like a Kurt loader or something. I was like, I can do that. That'll be fun. And uh, he had me come in and write a few things, do like a a weekend guide in 60 seconds or less. And he had an idea of kind of making a morning show sort of like, an NPR approach to commercial alternative and make it, you know, quick, concise points, which I'm not making here, but, um, basically I got the job 12 years ago, knock on wood. My key card worked today when I got here. So that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: So they took that approach 12 years ago. That's kind of the, I don't know. My, one of my hypotheses is that that's where local radio will eventually go is back to, being very hyper local and more almost podcasty in terms of, um, because it's for because everybody else will be on Apple music and Spotify and paying for Sirius yeah. And,
2: <laughs> yeah, um, exactly.
0: is that what you're seeing? And then I'm, I'm assuming it's been successful. If you've been there 12 years and if that's basically the same, if you're filling the same sort of role that you had when you started, it seems like it's, it's going well.
2: Yeah, I definitely, you know, I mean, I think to make it a music centric, you know, music centered, you know, type of radio station. I mean, I definitely had the, you know, the pedigree for that coming from the background that I came from. I definitely, you know, I'm not the wacky morning show guy. You know what I mean? So it's just mm-hmm. me and my it's alternative mornings with Greg and my, my dog Biscuit comes with me every morning. So Biscuit's become quite the star around here. So
1: <laughs> Nice. Um,
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: And I assume you get to bring together all the various different parts of your past, sort of the, the journalism aspect and the actually hands-on part of the music business and kind of bring it all together into one show. Is that the idea?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's, you know, my program director, he's, you know, he's the guy that's in charge of all the music and, you know, I get some picks here and there. And then on Sunday I have a show, um, sort of like my 120 minutes it's called the bottom 40 and um it's on every sunday night eight to ten out here and i think we're on week like 652 in a row you guys know what this is like sometimes you you love doing your this but you know it's like a homework assignment that you've got to do every week well it's my two hours where you know i can play whatever i want and so i've really enjoyed doing that and i'm lucky to have a boss that has let me do it for you know 12 years now but yeah I'll, I'll play an eno song into a harvey danger deep track into a clash deep track into you know a lot of new music as well that i'm still you know kind of discovering a band like dutch uncles or or whatever so, so i do get to do that on sunday night
0: and is that all streaming and can people uh tune in yeah,
2: you can it can yep yeah, you can stream it um live like i said it's uh Ten Pacific Time. Um, stream it at 947.fm. FM. Stream it live. Nice. And my, I've posted all my my playlists for twelve plus years. Um, I have a site where I post the playlist at the end of every show. It's the bottom forty com. You just spell out the word forty in the URL, so people can see what I've played for the last twelve years. If you're really bored.
1: Cool. Well, that seems like a good spot to uh, maybe. Wrap everything up for our conversation then.
2: Everything you've never wanted to know about a mediocre mid 90s indie rock label <laughs> oh. in one thing.
1: <laughs> we and
0: now this is great. We haven't talked to anybody from a label, have we, Tim? Um, uh, no. I guess we had a uh, kind of tangentially, I think, but we had, certainly no one that's owned a label.
1: No, no, no. We've had people who worked at labels, but like, yeah, we haven't had a someone with this level of access to uh to because you have a unique perspective both working for a major as in first as an intern and an actual a and r and then and then running your own indie i mean that's that's two different worlds so that definitely gives us a a totally unique perspective and it just so happens that so many of the bands that you ended up working with for bands that we have covered and really enjoy so uh and super drag's been around basically since the beginning of the show you know, going back to episode whatever that was in the first season, we've been talking about super drag records and and Sheila Divine and and whatnot. So
2: felt like Robin Hood for a, for a little while there. I would take from my major label job and give back to the indie.
1: <laughs> well, you did good work, and we appreciate that because uh, we got a lot of cool guys, records really, out of it.
2: Well, I really enjoyed this. I'm a big fan of what you guys do. So thanks a lot for having me.
1: Excellent. I want to give everybody. The, uh, the website that they can go to is uh, arenarock.com, where you can see the bands that have been on the label and read about the history. And then you can go to the social medias, uh, facebook.com forward slash A-R-R-C-O. And then uh, Twitter. You're not very active on the Twitter, not going to lie. You're... Uh, I don't
2: do Twitter. I think the Arena Rock Twitter account was set up by an ex-girlfriend, and I was just wondering about that. She probably still has access to it and could get me into big trouble if she went on there and started posting willy-nilly. I am i don't do Twitter.
1: It looks like it just feeds from your Facebook page. So whenever you okay. post something on Facebook, it just goes to your Arena Rock Twitter account. You might want to reclaim that. Well, thanks for that. letting me know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there's a gone fishing sign on it. Greg, thanks so much for joining us for this episode and uh, it's been a lot of fun learning about the history and, and about your backstory and everything so thanks again for joining us and I uh, want to remind people if you like what you heard please consider going to iTunes leave us some positive feedback and if you want to join us at Patreon patreon.com forward slash Dig Me Out. for Jay I'm Tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out
0: thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our facebook twitter and instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com